Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. And I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do, you, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring up the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know what the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches besides the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Thank you so much, Sean, for reading for us. And it has been lovely to welcome you guys to our church. And uh, we love to have uh, new members among us. Um, and friends, I hope you'll be ready to you know, keep coming in this journey into the book of Zechariah. As, uh, as Fox said, it can be a little intimidating, some of these visions, but it, still this is God's word and it's good for us. Um, this is a bit niche, I know, but a few weeks ago I was eagerly awaiting the latest update from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists concerning their doomsday clock. Um, for those not familiar, I, I kept trying to see if my family was excited about this. They weren't as excited as I was really at all. Uh, but if you're not familiar, the Doomsday Clock, it's been running for about 70 years. Uh, it's a symbolic clock that tries to express how close we are to a man-made global catastrophe. Um, 
it's really a metaphor for the way that developments in science and technology have almost in some areas now become a threat to our very own existence. And the goal is to spark the world into urgent action, the thought behind it being that since the problems they're considering are man-made, therefore the solutions will also be man-made. Now, it struck me this week that the Bible's perspective on our human predicament is um, both similar and different to the scientists who run the doomsday clock. Uh, Like the scientists, the Bible too insists that we have a very big and very urgent problem. Although the Bible would say it's actually bigger and far more urgent than anything the scientists are considering. It's the problem of our relationship with the God who made us, which is broken because of our sin and rebellion against him. Like the scientists as well, the Bible insists that our problem is man-made. Although exponentially more so, because I may live in a world with nuclear weapons, though I myself have never made one. I take it the same is true for you. But by nature, every one of us has definitely walked in sinful and rebellious ways towards God. And so those two similarities, a big, urgent problem that's all man-made, but here's the difference. Where the scientists suggest that our man-made problems need man-made solutions... For the problem of our relationship with God that is broken by our sin and rebellion, the Bible insists there is no man-made solution. It's just impossible. It's a hole that we can't dig ourselves out of. Now you stop and think about that for a moment and you think, well, if that is true, we really are in quite the predicament, aren't we? And you ask yourself, what would we need for that problem to be solved? What would we need for our relationship with God, which is broken by sin and rebellion, what would we need for that relationship to be repaired? And what would we need for our sin to be removed from us so that we can enjoy the precious gift of life in God's presence? There are probably different ways to think about this. Earlier in the week, I came up with a list of five things. I think since then, I've I've boiled it down to three. Now, I'll share them with you and you can try and evaluate them. I think, first of all, we need... A merciful God. That is, we need a God who doesn't harbour his anger forever, but is instead mercifully willing to treat us not as though our sins deserve. We need a merciful God. Second, we need a meeting place. We need somewhere where we can come into God's own presence and engage with him personally. We need a meeting place. Third, we need a mediator. That is, once we've come into God's presence, we actually need someone to come and stand in between us, representing us to God and God to us, and and reconciling us to each other. We need a mediator. Now, bring all of that to the tiny people of God who are living in the land of Judah in the days of the prophet Zechariah. That their relationship with God had been broken because of sin and rebellion, there was just no disputing that. Because although in the past God had warned their ancestors that they needed to turn from their wicked ways or else he would raise up against them an enemy, because they didn't listen, 
Therefore the Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem and they ransacked the temple and they carried the people off into a decades-long exile. But you see, now they're back in their homeland and despite that recent experience of God's anger, the, the prophet Zechariah, right out the gate, has assured them and made brilliantly clear to them that they do in fact have a merciful God. He longs for his people with a jealous love. He calls them wholeheartedly, chapter 1, verse 3, to return to him so that he might return to them. He speaks to them now, chapter 1, 13, in kind and comforting words. He promises them, chapter 1, verse 16, a, a nation where prosperity abounds for everyone. He calls them out, chapter 2, verse 6, from the lands to which they've been scattered. He calls them, chapter 2, verse 8, the apple of his eye. Friends, if you ever need reminding of the abounding mercy of God, just come back to Zechariah, chapter 1 and 2, and, and meditate on them and, and see what they reveal of God's character. And yet that's only one of the three things we need, isn't it? If, if my scheme was kind of right... That's only one of the three things we need. What, what about the other two, a, a meeting place and a mediator? Well, in some ways, I think here's where Zechariah 3 to 4 are going to help us. Just a very quick reminder of context. If you're here last week, uh, and, and if you weren't, you'll kind of catch it quickly, I hope, the, the two halves of Zechariah, and we're in the, the eight visions in the front half of the book. Um, and those eight visions are, are highly structured for us. So in the first three and the last three, the kind of pattern that happens is Zechariah looks up and he sees something, he doesn't understand it, but there's an angel nearby and they have a conversation with each other where the angel explains to Zechariah what's going on in the vision. That's the first three and the last three. Today, though, we're in the middle two visions. Uh, and not only do they have a different structure, but they also have a different focus um, on two important leaders of God's people called Joshua and Zerubbabel. You can see on your outline, uh, I'm suggesting the lesson of chapter 3 is that God will certainly carry out his promise to remove his people's sin. So the vision does centre on Joshua the high priest. When we think about high priest, we're thinking about Israel's priests back in the Old Testament. This was a system that God had established uh, to, to offer the sacrifices that would deal with Israel's ongoing sin. But even among all the priests, the high priest had one utterly unique, very special role to fulfill, one, one very unique ministry. Once a year, on what God called the Day of Atonement, uh, dressed in all kinds of ornate priest, priestly garments, he would enter into the very most inner room of the temple, called the, the Most Holy Place. And, and he would have with him the blood of a sacrificed animal, and, and this would be uh, how the people would be made right before God and their sins forgiven. He would go right into that place where God himself sat, as on a throne uh, above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. And you hold that image in your head. It's such a direct contrast to what Zechariah sees, isn't it? Where uh, Zechariah, uh, sorry, Joshua, the high priest, he's now there before an angel of the Lord. It's almost like a courtroom scene, perhaps, and the angel's like a magistrate. And Satan is there throwing accusations against Joshua. And the accusations look like they've got some merit. Joshua's dressed in filthy clothes. Kind of as vivid a way as we could imagine of capturing the problem of sin that makes people unclean before God and, and leaves them unfit for God's service. 
Now, for Joshua himself, that is a calamity. Satan accusing him, filthy clothes. But for the people of God, it's even worse, for he is the high priest. And how will their sin ever be dealt with if the high priest is disqualified for service because of his own sin? But now see the swift response of the merciful God. Verse 2, he rebukes Satan personally, not once, but twice. As even the Apostle Paul argues in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. And so he rebukes Satan. Verse 4, the angel of the Lord commands that Joshua's filthy clothes be taken away from him. Uh, explaining at the end of the verse, look, I've taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. In verse 5, Zechariah gets in on the action and he calls for a clean turban to be put on Joshua's head. A turban was part of the high priestly garments. Um, Verses 6 to 7, the angel reappoints Joshua for his high priestly service. And so in a matter of just moments, Uh, Even without Joshua himself having said or done anything, he is completely restored, wonderfully restored. His accuser is turned aside. His sin is taken away. He, He is reappointed to God's service. But you see, this vision of what happens to Joshua, this is actually to be, for the people of God, the great anchor of their hope. Because in just the same way that God has dealt with Joshua's sin, so he will deal with the people's sin. Do you see verse 8? Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I'll engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Do you see um, in these verses, there is a much bigger agenda in this chapter than simply what happens for Joshua. What's happened to him is what will happen for the people of God. A restoration to God's service that comes about because of the complete removal of sin, even in a single day. And the key to this happening will be for God to bring his servant, the branch. We know from elsewhere in the prophets that the branch is is really kind of a title for the Messiah. The, The branch is the king from David's line whom God will send to save his people and to rule with righteousness. And so God will send his servant, the branch, and when he comes, the sin of God's people will be removed. Now, honestly, I'm nowhere near as confident about the seven-eyed stone in verse 9. Um, I, do, I think it probably links to the end of the next vision where there's another reference to the seven eyes of the Lord which are always ranging throughout the, the earth. Uh, a helpful suggestion I heard uh, recently was that perhaps, uh, you know, the inscription that is engraved on this stone, it points us to the absolute certainty of God's promise. He hasn't merely spoken it, he's also written it down. But maybe that's a good suggestion. But in any case, the the future that God has promised here is a state of such blessed assurance, that promise of of the vine and the fig tree. And if you you know Hamilton, you can't hear that line without thinking of Hamilton. But in this case, it's not just that you're going to sit under your own vine and fig tree. The blessing will be so great, it just needs to be shared with others to be properly enjoyed. And so everyone's going to invite their neighbour to come in and sit under their vine and fig tree. It's a beautiful picture 
of that kind of almost hospitality, I wonder if we can call it that. Now, friends, I hope I won't surprise you when I say that the fulfilment of this vision, with all of its profound hope concerning the removal of sin and restoration to God's service, it comes to its great climax on the day that Christ Jesus laid down his life on the cross. See, when Jesus called out the words, it is finished, that wasn't a cry of defeat. That was a victorious declaration that the long-awaited day of Zechariah 3 had finally come. The removal of sin that this vision pointed forward to, it it finally been realised. A perfect high priest had come and perfectly fulfilled his high priestly ministry. The one true mediator between God and mankind. And yes, for those who trust in him, in a single day, sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. Now, at least one thing this means is that we no longer have to try and pretend, whether before God or before each other, about what we are really like. We don't have to pretend. Humbly, we are now free to admit that what the Bible teaches is true. By nature, we are stained by sin and unfit for God's service. This vision also reminds us that sin really is a problem that we ourselves cannot fix. We can't explain it away. We can't perform it away. It's very striking in this vision that Joshua himself says and does nothing. His only solution comes from outside of him from the abundant, merciful work of God. But finally, and and this is really the key that is an anchor for our hope, there is still a way for us to stand before God innocent, having had our sin removed in a single day. And that way is through the cross of Christ. He is the promised branch, the king in the line of David who came to save a people for God. And to put them forever beyond the reach of Satan's accusations. Uh, We often sing in one of our songs, and we're going to do so again in a couple of minutes. But just hear the assurance that trusting in Christ will bring, even on those days where we kind of feel weighed down by our sin, and we feel the weight of of accusations that could be levelled against us. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's the message of Zechariah 3. That's the hope of Zechariah 3. The removal of sin in a single day. And so now to the fifth vision, uh, chapter 4, the focus shifts from Joshua to Zerubbabel. And um, Zerubbabel was, in fact, a a direct descendant of David. Um, But when the Jews returned from exile, it was never really to that full state of kind of national sovereignty that they'd enjoyed in the past. And so Zerubbabel was governor, not king. Uh, As with Joshua, though, in chapter 3, Zerubbabel himself in this chapter, there's nothing that he says or does. What counts is what God says to him and what counts is what God says about him. 
as far as the way the chapter works overall, Zechariah sees a vision at the start. There's a golden lampstand. It's got seven lamps. They've got seven channels feeding the seven lamps. And on either side of the bowl, there are two olive trees. And Zechariah says to the angel, what's that all about? And the angel doesn't give him an answer at that point. After that, in the middle section, verses 6 to 10, there are two words of the Lord, one for Zerubbabel, one for Zechariah. We'll come back to them. And then at the end of the chapter, we come back to the olive trees and the lampstand, and, and in the final verse, uh, Zechariah receives an answer about what, is, what that's all about. So that's kind of how this chapter works. By way of background, though, we, we really need to understand that a golden lampstand was one of the important uh, articles that was kept in the temple. Um, the lamps, were, there were seven of them, that they were maintained on a daily basis by the priests who'd go in and trim the lamps so that they could be kept continuously burning as a sign of God's constant presence. But what Zechariah sees here is a little bit different to the lamp that is described earlier on in the Old Testament because, first of all, there's that bowl at the top of it and there are the channels that go to each of the lamps and then there are the two olive trees on either side. And you put all that together and I think what we're meant to see here is that this lampstand is kept alight. The lamps on this lampstand are kept alight by God without any intervention from the priests. Uh, the olive trees pour out the oil that fills the bowl that goes to the lamps. It's just a system that God maintains permanently. I think that's what going, is going on in the vision. Okay, what about the two words from the Lord? Well, let's start with the one that was spoken to Zerubbabel. Uh, verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. And then he'll bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. The mighty mountain, uh, probably a reference to Babylon, even within living memory, just so big and so powerful and so dominant, but now to be leveled completely. The reference to Zerubbabel bringing out the capstone, um, that's really about him bringing out the final precious piece that will be laid in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But God declares that this work of, of Babylon being levelled and the temple being rebuilt and completed, this work will not be done by Zerubbabel's might or power. It will be a work of God by the Spirit of God in accordance with the promise of God. And that's why the word of the Lord now comes to Zechariah. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Uh, I don't know if you're into jigsaw puzzles in your family, uh, in our family. I think this is probably a fairly standard rule. But there's, there is an unwritten rule whenever someone's doing a jigsaw puzzle that along the way, others can most certainly come along and help in the work but only one person can put in the last piece. Is that fair? The person whose puzzle it is, who started the puzzle, the helpers can't do the last piece. They can't snitch it in their pocket and come in and go, ta-da! It's only the person whose puzzle it is. That's a trivial example, but I think that's the kind of thing that God is saying here about Zerubbabel. The, the rebuilding of the temple has been a lot of hard work. There's been a lot of opposition. There's been a deeply discouraging time for God's people. For a while, the building of the temple had even ground to a complete halt. But God has chosen Zerubbabel to be he, his, 
his man to rebuild the temple. He started the work and he will finish the work. He laid the foundation. He will put in place the capstone. I mean, in the midst of opposition, can you see what a comforting word that must have been for the people of God? He has a plan. And Zerubbabel is the guy. The temple will be rebuilt. What a comforting word that must have been. I suspect, though, it was also a bit of a corrective word. A reorienting word. A, a word that kind of realigned their thinking and, and brought about a complete transformation in the way that they were thinking about life. Because, you see, judging things from a merely human point of view, compared to the great power and splendour of Persia, and rebuilding this relatively small building in the ruins of Jerusalem, it just must not have seemed all that impressive. And, you know, you consider those great currents of history, these big empires that were coming and going and just rewriting the map of the world. Perhaps to many people, it didn't really seem like Zerubbabel rebuilding this building was the right priority for him to have. And perhaps many people would say the same things today whenever a Christian prioritises their weekly gathering with God's people. Or they try to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Or they devote themselves to daily Bible reading and prayer. Or when a missionary is commissioned to go and proclaim Christ in a foreign land, just like we did yesterday with Kelly Nicholas. Or when nearly 20 young men and women stand up publicly and say, I follow Christ, as will happen here tonight. In the greater scheme of things, some of these activities just don't seem all that impressive, do they? And you look at the big issues that are swirling around us and which seem to demand so much of our attention, and there are many. It's easy to feel that perhaps telling people about Jesus or having a daily quiet time or making it to church and Bible study every week in a commitment to take your place in the building up of God's people, sending someone to Japan to do work in a university and a local church, proclaiming Christ. I mean, it's just easy to feel like these things, these activities, they, they, and they can't be the first priority, can they? Not when I look at the great currents of history that are swirling around. Hear the word of the Lord in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Who dares despise the day of small things? So it seems that God doesn't measure things the way that we do. What we consider weak, he considers strong. What we consider foolish, he says, there is wisdom. And what we could easily regard as a day of small things, God has declared is the very establishing of his kingdom on earth, that his will might be done here as it is in heaven. 
Simply put, God's perspective is different and he calls his people in every age to change theirs so that it aligns with his. And so now at the end of the chapter, Zechariah finally gets an answer about the two olive branches that pour out the golden oil into the channels to feed the lamps. They are the two men, Joshua and Zerubbabel, whom the sovereign Lord of all the earth has chosen to serve him. And so now by this point in the prophecy, this point in the book of Zechariah, God's people don't just have the assurance of a merciful God. They also have the promise of a mediator, the high priest, Joshua, who for us is fulfilled in the New Testament by the branch who came, Jesus the Messiah, to die on the cross and take away sin in a single day. And they have the promise of a meeting place, the temple that would be rebuilt by Zerubbabel, which for us is fulfilled in the New Testament, not by a physical building, but by a spiritual building. The people from every nation, tribe and tongue that God is now gathering together, brick by brick, one by one, person by person, around Jesus Christ, his chosen precious capstone. Friends, here is the kingdom of God promised through Zechariah. May we see it more clearly and love it more dearly and walk in it more sincerely. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks for these visions that sustained your people and revealed to them the kingdom that you were establishing and we thank you that we have the fulfilment of these promises so clearly through the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to realign our vision to realign our thinking, to reorient our whole lives so that they line up with the priorities that you yourself have set for your growing kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.